what we are in the the sugya that we are wading our way through is perhaps we could entitle it how big can I really be which means we've been discussing in approaching Rosh Hashanah there's an idea of something which is called the Midat Hadin the attribute of justice which we explain to mean the expectations that the Creator has of us in terms of what we can achieve. In the world where everything is given, there's no room for growth. Because a person doesn't move forward when there's no motivation for him to do so. If everything is going to be given to him for free, why bother earning a living? Whereas a person that has no money, and in order for him to eat, he has to go out and do something. So that creates a demand on him to achieve. And so to every level of life, the fee according to the demand placed upon him that's how he will rise to the challenge if there are no demands he won't rise and therefore the connection between expectation demand and growth is great now what we did discuss briefly was that that connection has to be processed in the correct fashion if a person feels a pressure, a closing down of self, so then the demands on him actually backfire. And the more he feels the, the more he feels the pressure of living up to something, the more he feels that he's been squashed out of the picture, and the worse his achievement and growth actually becomes. Uh, to elaborate or to clarify. The point is as follows, that in order for a person to grow, he needs to have a demand placed upon him. In order for a person to, to grow, he needs to be relaxed and happy. A person cannot grow in a state of stress and anxiety. A person, in order to grow, he has to be fluid. Just as a person's movements, when he's stressed and anxious, are reflected in a jerky and non-solid, not integrated, not flowing movements, because the points of connection between the parts of his body are so at, on edge that he can't move properly, and therefore were to enter into a comp any competition which would require athletic prowess, he would fail. So too, the inner spiritual self the inner emotional body, when there's tension, it obstructs the smoothness of movement between the joints and the person cannot succeed. So therefore the two conditions of growth are a demand to be big that's placed upon us and a relationship to that demand that it doesn't become oppressive. The minute it becomes oppressive, so we fall under the pressure and we become non-functional. Are you following me? How do we process this in day-to-day -day life and what is expectations of us? How to deal with deep expectations, hard expectations, tough expectations, yet remaining happy and productive? The Balatanya describes this in the following way. We've discussed it many times before, but it's always good to repeat it. He paints uh, the following scenario. There are two men, both 
extremely well built who are about to enter into a wrestling match they get into the ring and the one champion wrestler he has been unbeaten in his last 300 wrestling matches it's not only his physique it's his skill his technique is so fantastic that almost within the first five minutes of the first round he has his opponent pinned down and today is fighting a a relative rookie who's big and strong but not as big and strong as him and he doesn't have the technique or the sophistication and our expert wrestler he's not feeling that well today he's lethargic he can't he doesn't have the energy to put into the fight even the man his opponent who doesn't have the physique or the skill but has the tenacity and the enthusiasm will pull down pull, push down pin down our expert wrestler within a short period of time because even with the ultimate skills and the body if you don't have the drive and the enthusiasm and the vitality you'll be pinned down what anxiety stress and depression suck from a person are the enthusiasm and the vitality and therefore there's a rule if a person by the way we're all engaged in mortal battle day and night we are not angels we are a composite of man and angel of angel and beast and those two parties wore out day in day out if in that game in that battle we are not enthusiastic and we're not excited and we're not happy so the battle never gets off the ground we're defeated from the word go in other words simcha joy as opposed to depression is not a nice thing to have if you happen to get there it's a prerequisite for movement in Torah it has to be there if it's not there you can't move because the movement forward ultimately will involve a struggle no one moves forward just because he happens to be standing on some type of platform standing on the platform doesn't move you forward at all as we said yesterday life is a series of openings every time we get to a new portal we have to cross over it and often at that juncture there's a struggle that is required of us and if you don't have the strength to engage in the struggle you just oh who am I what can I do I'll never make it you can't make it you can't make it now I'd like to perhaps to get so is everyone following me are you all semi-awake it's not it's, it's not gonna be long now don't worry gentlemen um, we've got approximately 20 oddments left what I'm going to try to do is in the next five minutes I'm going to lower my voice and try to speak in the softest possible tones so hopefully those of you who are feeling the heaviness of your eyelids will be able to drift into a <laughs> very comfortable sleep um, it won't be long before you feel the 
relief of slumber overcoming you and at that point in time the droning voice in the background will be but a distant memory so I'm going to focus on that I'm going to focus on the gentle soft voice and I'll try to keep it in a monotone without too much tonal variation <laughs> so those of you who are a little bit tired and bored can just ease ease yourselves into a gentle sleep in fact to accelerate the process I'll discuss something which is of the utmost boredom in a way that people will find no interest in it. Let us discuss <coughs> European art developments <laughs> in the latter part of the 13th century in the Rhine Valley. This fascinating topic of study has been widely researched by a series of art enthusiasts. <laughs> they have found that the artwork is not only diverse in style, but rich in character. No! <laughs> Sleep is not the answer, gentlemen. On the contrary, we're in Elul, where the whole direction is to move away from sleep. As the Rambam says, what is the reason for the blasting of the shofar? Why do we blow the Why do we blow the shofar on Rosh Hashanah? He says, even though it's a mitzvah according to the Torah law, it says it. You, why'd you do it? It says it. The Eivushat Gazok, Galadik. He says, there's another reason. There's a marshal adava. Ooh, Yeshani Mishinoskem. Awaken. Oh, slumberers from your sleep. Now, this is fascinating. Why are people who are engaged in the normal process of living referred to as sleepers? If you understand what the notion of sleep is, is a person is essentially present, but he's unaware of his external environment. He's caught up in a dream world. The world that experiences in a state of sleep has no connection to the external reality that surrounds him. The danger of becoming habitualized in our day-to-day -day life is we are in a locked into a perpetual sleep. Not that we are literally unmoving. We're alive. We move. We do. But the world that we're caught up in is but a dream. And the goal of the shofar is to awaken us and say, reconsider. Perhaps you have become trapped in a paradigm prison. Perhaps you are captured in a conceptual cage whereby the outer world is foreign to you. As the well-known Marshall says, there was my once a man, of course we could start off with the king and the castle. Don't know Tim, have you heard about this king? Amazing man. Amazing. But I mean, the what's more impressive is his castle. Right. On the top of a hillock, in order to build this elaborate structure, they literally spent 10 years, a decade, importing the finest Italian marble <laughs> into the heart of this forest, where the hillock, of course, was adjacent. And they built up this, this, this structure, magnificent in its architecture, awesome in its scale 
when you glance from between the trees in the nearby forest and you look at this castle standing upon the hillock in the sunlight it would shimmer as if almost it was like the waves of sea waves of the sea shining in the sun and in the center of this castle there lived a king a king seated with grandeur upon his throne made from the finest ebony studded with jewels his crown proudly placed upon his head looks down at a man that's been brought before him this man is looking bewildered and afraid his entire being bespeaks of someone that's completely unfamiliar someone afraid he's cowering looking from side to side like a frightened animal and the king with interest looks down upon him and says to the servant that is holding him servant who is this miserable specimen the king waits for the reply and the servant says your majesty we have a story to tell you. You know your magnificent palace, my magnificent palace indeed. It's beautiful, isn't it? It shimmers in the sun. So in the middle of your palace, if you go down, 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 we discovered a secret trapdoor. We were fitting around one day and we actually managed to, by chance, come upon it. And we opened it up and we looked down inside the trapdoor and we saw there was a deep and dark cellar somehow through the ages had become someone forgotten about it in the cellar there was a small spring and piles and piles and piles of food enough to last for hundreds of years preserved with the finest royal preservatives you know what they were salt and <laughs> salt, salty fruit is geschmack and this man, this man somehow had never left that cellar in his entire life. And as we opened up the trapdoor, we looked inside and we saw someone scurrying away. He'd never met a person. And his whole world was this dark and dank cellar. He'd never seen the light of the sun. He'd never seen a tree. He'd never walked alongside a bubbling brook. He'd never seen the sparrows fly or the bluebirds sing. He was a man that his entire universe consisted of this dark and dank cellar. That was his world. And we've just brought him out. And the king looks at him and this man's eyes are cast downward and he's overwhelmed. He's overwhelmed. And the king extends his scepter towards him and says come here my sir come here and he comes towards the king and the king stands up from his throne and walks down the steps that lead up to his majestic seat towards this man and he says my son come with me he grabs him by the hand and he says do not be afraid and slowly but surely the fear the anxiety that possess this man dissolve and with the king holding him by the hand they walk down away from the castle down the hillock into the forest and as he goes through the forest the king points out the trees the sun the bubbling brook the birds 
deers scurrying away between the branches of the trees which lie down. The sun dappled upon the path in front of him and the man grows in his joy, in his anticipation of what may come next. He says, Your Majesty, until this time I never knew what the world was. My entire world was encompassed by that small little cellar. I'm shocked and at the same time I'm exhilarated and I'm excited about what lies beyond. But at the same time I'm filled with remorse and regret at the years I spent trapped in that prison which I knew not was a prison. And when he said those words the king paused and he said almost repeating his phrase the prison that I knew not was a prison. The prison that I knew not was a prison. And then he thought about himself. And as he was thinking about himself, he saw a strange sight on a tree nearby. A target had been drawn. And in the center of the target, in the bull's eye, an arrow had been shot. He turned to the man and he said, Do you know what that is? The man said, I've never seen it before. He says, That is a target. A person takes a long bow, a piece of curved wood with a string behind it. He threads an arrow, a sharp stick which has a point, and he shoots it in a direction. And if his shot is accurate, he's able to hit the target. And if it's even more accurate, he hits the bull's eye of the target. And this archer has shot it directly into the bull's eye. It's an astonishing feat. And the, the bewildered man says, indeed, it sounds astonishing. They keep on walking through the forest, continuing their discussion. And lo and behold, they come to a, another tree with another target and another arrow in the bullseye. And it must be seven or eight trees with targets later that the king is absolutely shocked, astonished by the consistent accuracy of the marker. He always gets it right. He always does it. How is that possible? And as he's thinking these thoughts, he has a rustle in the bushes and from between two trees comes a man dressed completely in green with a sheath of arrows upon his back and a longbow in his left hand ready to thread another arrow and shoot it. And he says, are you the archer that's been shooting these arrows all along the path that we have traversed? And the archer bows down in humility and says, your majesty, it is I. Says the king to the archer. But how is it possible? The skill, the accuracy, the consistency that every single time you manage to get the arrow in the bullseye. And the archer with a mischievous glint in his eye looks at the king, smiles, and then from a side holster he produces a small bottle of paint and a paintbrush. And he says, Your Majesty, this is a trick. What do you mean, <coughs> Master Archer? He says, It's quite simple. First, I shoot the arrow. Then I draw the target. And the king looked at him. And he looked at his companion. And he said, There's your prison. There's your cage. The man was bewildered. What does he mean by that? The king explained. He says, just as the archer 
shoots the arrow in the direction of his choice and constructs the target around it. When I heard your words when you said, and I didn't know the prison was a prison, what came to mind was the archer and what he's doing in a different sense. I thought so many times, philosophically speaking, I shoot the arrow and I draw the target around it. I decide where I want to be and where I want to go and then I construct a justification, a philosophy, a worldview which will support where I am. And in doing so, I web myself, I wind myself, I weave myself into a spider's web where I'm caught struggling for survival and being unaware of it. I'm caught in your prison. I think my whole world is this narrow construct that I've invented to rationalize my actions. And the man said, Your Majesty, give me a break. It's been a hard day. <laughs> 24 hours ago I was in my happy little prison. Leave me alone. And he ran off and became a gypsy. <laughs> <laughs> so really what the Rambam means when he says awaken from your sleep, O slumber, is he means that's the sleep that we're talking about. The sleep is the sleep that we inflict upon ourselves, the sleep that we imagine, the sleep that we illusory world that we generate from our own minds and from our own desires, whereby we, want to, we know what we want to do in life, all we have to do now is discover the philosophy which justifies it. And if there isn't one, we'll make one up as we go along. So I decide that, well, do you know what, it's very important for me to eat healthily. Now chocolate is healthy. Why is chocolate healthy? Well, you have to understand, I enjoy eating chocolate and I have to eat healthily, so therefore chocolate is healthy. <laughs> There are many such rationalizations that we live with day to day. I need, you start off with I need, and then you come up with the idea, and then you develop the philosophy around it. You know, I need to have, it's, sorry, we start this way. It's imperative that a person drives a car which is, has an engine size above two liters. Why is that? Because if you don't have a car that size, so then you don't get the big vroom. Why do you need the big vroom? If you don't have the big vroom, so then your car is impotent. What's wrong with an impotent car? An impotent car bespeaks an impotent person. So therefore, I but that's too grob to say. So what you say is, it's important for me, because of my status, to be able to be looked upon. Otherwise, it's a chilul Hashem for me to drive in something, anything less than that. Etc. 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 I have to have a horseman galloping across my left chest. Otherwise, Otherwise, people will think that there's, that I'm not a sporty type of fellow and that will be a chilul Hashem. I have, etc, 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 etc. So what we have to do is we have to kind of think to ourselves, what kind of prisons have we trapped ourselves in? Where are our cages? What are the limitations? And how can we break it? It comes along the shofar and it breaks it. Now, how does the shofar break it? Why don't we use an axe? <laughs> <laughs> Truth is, it's not a bad idea. But... Could be caught. Um, so, how does the shofar work? The shofar is an interesting intru- instrument. I mean, if you'd ask me, you want to play music to God, I would have suggested maybe a saxophone. Um, <laughs> but a shofar, I mean, can't you get better than that? Have you tried people? Like, uh, you try, try, try play something relatively melodious upon a shofar. You don't get very far. You do not get very far. I, I think it's no, it's no coincidence 
that the shofar has been left out of most <laughs> musical performances. <laughs> There's no Mozart's Mozart Fifth Symphony for shofars. <laughs> Beethoven's Concerto for oboe and shofar. It just doesn't. <laughs> It doesn't happen. It doesn't, why not? Why, why? You, you, you're making music for the creator. Do a, do, do a better job than that. And seemingly there were other instruments available. And this is the only instrument that there's a Torah obligation to blow. I think it's bizarre. A trumpet. Why not a trumpet? Um, so we have to think about the show frame. We have to think what type of music we mean to play. And the show awakens us from our sleep. How does it do that? I would like to suggest that the shofar is the shofar, sorry, is the ultimate coming to terms with who I am as a person. If you look at the shofar, the fact that it's such a primitive instrument is a deliberate move on behalf of God to help to us to understand something about ourselves. The life force of a person is most readily represented by what's called breath. If you want to um, see if a person's alive, the most external way of evaluating it is you go over to him and you see is he still breathing the breath is the symbolic representation of a person being alive and the life force is expressed through the breath breathing in breathing out is how we live when a person expresses his breath expels his breath one could describe that as a expression of the life force which rests within but purely breathing out doesn't give the life force the tone and the timber that it requires but take that life force and use a conduit what kind of conduit do you have to use you have to use the horn of a ram. The horn of a ram? A curved horn of a ram. So that even the visual representation should not be direct and straight, but it should be bent over to describe the modesty, to describe the vulnerability of self. Take that. Take it off the head of the lamb that replaced the ultimate act of devotion of Yitzchak take that that stands in his place and then take the very essence of who you are as a being and say to the creator I have no sophistication to give you in the true sense of the word because none of it is mine I have no words to communicate my essence the only thing I have is my raw existence I take that and I blow it out I express it I translate it into a yearn and a cry a deep primeval, primeval scream that all I want is a connection which transcends all the muck that's accumulated on top of the purity of self. 
don't give me the sophistication of language of music don't give me the aesthetic beauty let me return to a place where everything is a cover but the essence of who I am let me take that and let me express that to you as if to say everything else is irrelevant what makes me me is the soul that you've placed inside my body when a person comes to that depth of realization all those cages all those prisons all those artificial constructs disappear as a cloud in the sky as a wisp of smoke blown by the wind and all that remains is the purity of self and on Rosh Hashanah as that shofar is blown the purity of self is retained and the person stands naked before the Creator and he says this is who I am and everything I am comes from you and that's all there is and that's the process and that's the direction that we're going in to strip off all the nonsense and to relate to the core of our being and once we have that we have everything and we have everything but that we have nothing and that that's where that's how we escape the prison we're able to get out through the opening called the Shafer. that's how we go through and in the literal sense in the metaphorical sense in the physical and the metaphysical so gentlemen the coil of the Shafer, the voice of the Shafer, blasts from without let us begin to blast from within and sound the deep shofar from within ourselves as an approach to Rosh Hashanah. Thank you for your time. Bye-bye.